You're listening to the Metamore City Podcast, episode 15, for April 6th, 2008. Warning. This episode contains mature themes and situations. Listener discretion is advised. Metamore City, a podcast series created by Chris Lester. For more information, please visit www.metamorecity.com. Hello, Metamorphs, and happy April! Can you believe that 2008 is 25% over already? Scary how fast time flies these days. At any rate, this is the Metamorph City Podcast, and I am your host, Chris Lester. Things are going pretty well out here. Work is getting busier, but the rest of my life seems to have calmed down a little bit, at least for the moment. We're starting to get some warmer, sunnier days up here in Michigan, and that's always good for my morale, too. Though we did get a big snowfall over Easter weekend. See what I told you about March and Michigan people? You can't trust it. Still, life is good. I want to take a moment here to pimp out the work of some other writers I admire who are in the news lately. First of all, for those of you who've been living under a rock, Seth Harwood and Scott Sigler both released print versions of their podcast novels during the last few weeks. Harwood's crime novel, Jack Wakes Up, hit number one in mystery on Amazon when it debuted on Palm Sunday, and we're fully expecting Sigler's Infected to storm the New York Times bestseller list. Big congratulations go to both of these guys on turning podcasting into a commercial success. Now, because this is an urban fantasy series, though, I would be remiss if I didn't point out two other books that have just come out. I just finished reading Kim Harrison's novel The Outlaw Demon Wales, which is the latest book in what she calls the Hollows series. On April 1st, Jim Butcher released the next book in the Dresden Files series, which is titled Small Favor. Jim and Kim are two of my favorite authors in the business right now. Their imaginative urban fantasy worlds, rocking good action, and excellent characterization make these books an absolute joy to read. I love the outlaw demon whales, and I can't wait for my copy of Small Favor to get here so I can jump into that. For those of you who listen to audiobooks, and how many of you don't, given that you're listening to a podcast, I should also mention that they are simultaneously releasing Small Favor on audio CD. The book is read by James Marsters, best known as Spike on Buffy and Angel, and you can get it on Amazon for less than 30 bucks, which is a great deal for a commercial audiobook. If you haven't read these series, you're really missing out. Oh, and if you're interested in hearing the interview that I did with Kim Harrison, you can find that over at I Should Be Writing, Merle Lafferty's podcast for wannabe fiction writers. The link will be in the show notes. All right, that's enough pimping for now. Let's get into Chapter 7 of Making the Cut. Here is the story so far. Daniel Shirabi's illegal smuggling job was a success, but things would have been easier for him if he had failed. After Ava Salindi helped extract him from the Skyport, he learned that they had been hired by agents of Malcolm Ardvalos, the vampire crime lord of Metamore City. He knows that Victor killed two telepaths during the mission, men who were probably sent by the Psy Collective to intercept the package. Without meaning to, Daniel has become a traitor to the Hive, taking part in the deaths of two of his own people. What Daniel doesn't know is that those two psyops were Dell and Trace, two friends of his from Westfall Academy. They had been brought in to help Brian, Fiona, and Sasha, three additional friends who also happened to share a breeding cell with Daniel's old girlfriend, Rebecca. 
Del had passed off the vampire's package to Fiona before he was killed, but her escape was stopped by Callie Linder, a teenaged runner whose supernatural luck helped her to catch Fiona in a magical booby trap. Callie recovered the package and took it back to the vampires, but she spared Fiona's life, lying to Victor to make him think that the woman had broken her neck. Fiona, Sasha, and Brian escaped from the skyport, alive but with nothing to show for their mission. The story picked up again a few days later, introducing us to Miriam Bakhtavar, an elder of the Psy Collective. Miriam paid a visit to the apartment of Philippe Devereaux, a telekinetic whom Victor had killed and then used as a scapegoat for the deaths of Dell and Trace. Though Miriam is a very powerful telepath, she was unable to read Victor's thoughts, and he deceived her into thinking that Devereaux was the rogue who had helped the vampires and then taken payment from them in a discreet numbered account. Believing that Devereaux died resisting capture by Victor, Miriam allowed Victor to claim this blood money as a reward for finding the killer before the police could become involved. Victor then told Miriam that he was tired of fighting and intended to leave the collective. Miriam was sad to see him go, but gave him her blessing nonetheless, thinking that his stormy and unreadable thoughts were the result of the inner torment he suffered. After Miriam left, Victor reported to William Westerson, the vampire security expert who had hired him for the mission. Here, the cause of Victor's unreadable thoughts was revealed. The nanopixies that they had smuggled into the city are not a weapon, but a tool that split a person's thoughts between their own neurons and a dense electrical network that they construct in parallel to the nervous system. Victor has used a sample of the product on himself, rendering him immune to any form of telepathic manipulation. Now, with his freedom assured, Victor prepares to recover the biggest prize of all, his student, Abby Preston, the most powerful telepath that the Hive has seen in generations. Chapter 7 May 29th, 1995, Christos Reckoning Daniel stared at the phone in his hand, trying to summon the resolve to dial a number he'd memorized months ago. After a minute or two, he set the phone down, thinking better of it. He hadn't heard from Victor since the mission, other than a brief text message he'd received last night. All loose ends tied up. I'm getting out tomorrow. Farewell, and thanks for watching my back. V. Daniel had felt like he would be sick again just looking at it. He wanted to confront Victor about the way he'd used him. He wanted to demand an explanation for why Victor was working for the Vampire Syndicate, and why he hadn't shared that information with Daniel beforehand. Not that it would tell him anything that he couldn't already guess at, but he wanted to hear it from Victor himself, to hear him admit how he'd played Daniel for a fool. I guess what I really want is just to punch him right in the face, he thought. Not that it would bring back the men he killed. Daniel fought down the gorge in his throat. No matter how hard he tried to avoid it, his thoughts kept circling back to those two dead spookies, lying on the deck of the cargo tender beside him. It didn't matter that he didn't know who they were. By healing Victor, he'd signed their death warrants. Their faces had been appearing to him in his dreams. Of course, according to Ava, they had been wearing disguise amulets, so that really didn't tell him very much. I wish I knew who they were so I could at least try to do something to make amends. Next to him, the phone's handset began to ring. He looked at the ID, which read Summers. His pulse quickened. It was someone from Brian's cell. He pushed the talk button and raised the phone to his ear. Rebecca? There was a moment of silence. Then, 
Daniel. This is Fiona. Daniel felt a twinge of disappointment, then pushed it aside. Hey, Fee, I haven't talked to you in forever. What's up? The egoist hesitated before speaking. Unfortunately, I come to you as the bearer of bad news, she said, her voice tight and controlled. Two of our former teammates have been killed. Daniel felt claws sinking into his gut. Oh, Eli, no. Please, no. Who was it? Del Matthews and Trace Umbara. He felt sick. He wanted to pound his head against something. He wanted to scream at himself in the mirror and curse himself for a blind fool. Gods, of course. A wolf man and a tall, muscular man. Trace even spoke to me and I didn't recognize him. Fiona was still speaking. I fear I cannot divulge specifics over an unsecured line. If you come to visit the nest, we will tell you more. Daniel hesitated. Visiting Rebecca's breeding cell was always painful for him, and he avoided it when he could. How is everyone holding together? he asked, carefully. Not well, Fiona admitted. Daniel could hear the weariness in her voice. All of us have been deeply shaken by it. I have done my best to give strength to the others, but it is difficult. She paused. Daniel, the funeral is tomorrow. Ryan and Sasha and I believe that Rebecca would benefit from your support if you are willing. Of course, Daniel said immediately. I'll be there as soon as I can. Thank you, Fiona said. I will let her know to expect you shortly. Wait, don't I get to talk to her on the phone first? I do not think that would be wise. You know how she feels about speaking without telepathic contact. Daniel nodded to himself and sighed. Yeah, you're probably right. Give me half an hour. Understood. Fiona hung up without any further pleasantries. Daniel looked at the phone, then set it down and buried his head in his hands. It was worse than he'd thought. Not only had Victor killed two fellow teeps, but he'd killed two of Daniel's childhood friends. He hadn't seen them lately, sure, but that didn't mean that they meant any less to him. Memories drifted back to him unbidden, a hundred incidents where they'd gotten each other into trouble, or helped each other get back out again. He thought about Trace's cheerful egomania and Dell's happy-go-lucky attitude. He remembered when Dell left active participation in the Collective to marry another wolf morph. Josephine was a smart, confident, and independent woman who had just enough telepathy to be compatible with Dell. She had refused to join the Hive for religious reasons, and for her sake he had been willing to leave it. Daniel tried to imagine what she was going through right now, how she must have reacted when she heard the news that her husband was dead. He started weeping almost before he realized what was happening. He tried to choke back the sobs that heaved in his chest, but the images of his friends kept appearing before his mind's eye like accusing ghosts. Eli, forgive me. At last he willed himself to pull it together. Rebecca needed him, and here he was, wallowing in his apartment. Admittedly, the last thing he wanted to do right now was go into the middle of a room full of telepaths. If any of them saw in his mind what he had helped to do to Dell and Trace, he was as good as dead. But this was Rebecca, and for her he'd walk into the ninth hell if he had to. He went to the bathroom and washed and dried his face. His eyes were bloodshot from crying, but at least he wasn't covered with salt-encrusted tear tracks anymore. As he headed out the door to his apartment, his eyes drifted over to the phone sitting by his chair. 
I just had to ask who it was I killed, he thought sourly. His eyes drifted to the ceiling. Either I just wasted an actual wish, or someone up there has a sick sense of humor. Daniel arrived at the breeding cell's nest to find it eerily quiet. He knocked twice, and Fiona ushered him inside. Her face was a calm mask of composure, but her emerald eyes had lost their fire. Now they just looked weary and careworn. Daniel looked around as he entered. Where's Brian and Sasha? he asked, keeping his voice down. Still at work. Network administration and psychiatric counseling rarely allow for regular 40-hour shifts. Fortunately, I can handle my investment duties as easily here as anywhere else, so I can stay home and help Rebecca. Her forehead creased slightly. As much as I am able. Daniel nodded, understanding her meaning all too well. Fiona was about as well suited to being a grief counselor as Rebecca was to being a stockbroker. Where is she? he asked. In her studio. Fiona nodded toward the hallway. The first door on the right. He knocked lightly before entering. Bex? She did not respond immediately. The door was slightly ajar, so he pushed it open and took a step inside. The studio was much like the one he remembered from the apartment they had shared at university. It looked like a tornado had swept through an art museum. Blank canvases, buckets and jars of paint, brushes, used drop cloths, sketch pads, and sculpting materials were scattered haphazardly around the room, pushed into corners or tucked away behind paintings and drawings in various stages of completion. The scent of drying paint hung heavy in the air. The end of the room closest to the door held mostly finished illustrations, while the ones near the far end had been started only recently. The pictures ranged from corporate logos and conceptual drawings of offices, through cartoons and portraits, to stunning and outlandish landscapes that might well have been visions of other worlds, given the unpredictable nature of Rebecca's ESP. Nearly all of the finished works made use of the vivid and colorful style that Daniel thought of as Rebecca's trademark, optimism and irrepressible goodwill, infused into oil and ink and captured on canvas. The scene at the far end of the room was a different story. Rebecca stood in her paint-splattered coveralls before a large canvas, attacking it with sharp, violent strokes of her brush. She moved like a fencer, keeping her weight on the balls of her bare feet as she darted in to strike and then withdrew again. Her swollen belly made her movements a little ungainly and awkward, but what they lacked in grace they made up for in ferocity. And the painting itself... It took a few seconds for Daniel to realize what he was looking at. At first he saw only a jumbled swirl of black and red, with accents of putrid green. As he came closer, though, he saw that the darkness of the canvas was filled with dozens of slightly different shades and hues, which joined together to form an image that might have been better left in nightmares. A dark warrior strode through a pile of broken and shattered bodies, his hands and arms covered in blood. The figure was abstract and distorted, giving it a surreal look as if he were something not quite human. He wore no shirt, his hair was tangled and wild, and his eyes were huge and luminescent green, like the eyes of a predator seen at night. His mouth was open in a savage grin, bearing a mouthful of narrow, pointed teeth. He wore a necklace of bones, some of them clearly human. His hands were curled into huge, deformed-looking claws, which dripped blood onto the bodies of the fallen men beneath him. Among them were a wolf morph and a bald Arambian, their bodies torn almost in half at the warrior's feet. 
In the background, dogging the man's heels and hovering around his head, a crowd of small red demons watched with drooling jaws and bright, hungry eyes. My God, Daniel whispered. It was incredible. It was hideous. It was perverse. It was genius. He struggled to tear his eyes away from the painting as his admiration of Rebecca's skill warred with his utter revulsion at the subject matter. Rebecca herself seemed similarly transfixed, staring fixedly at the canvas as if in a fever dream. He forced himself to come closer, to turn his eyes away from the nightmare and onto the woman in front of it. Rebecca's eyes glowed yellow like a pair of torches. Oh my god! He got behind her, wrapped his arms around her, and turned her away from the canvas, covering her eyes with one hand. She struggled against him, whimpering incoherently, but he held her close in a gentle and completely unyielding grip. Snap out of it, Rebecca, he urged, speaking directly into her ear. He touched her lightly with his thoughts, but he didn't allow himself to get too close. She was caught inside her own second sight, and letting himself be drawn down inside of that could well destroy his sanity. Rebecca had a lifetime of experience dealing with the visions, and even she couldn't always control herself when they came on her. A novice wouldn't stand a chance. Come back, Bex, he said, holding out the mental image of an outstretched hand. Let go of it and come back to me. Daniel? She asked, her voice little more than a ragged whisper. It's me, he confirmed. Come on home, Becca. She let out a long, shuddering breath and collapsed against him his strong arms holding her up. He guided her over to the little stage she used for her modeling subjects and helped her to sit down. She leaned her head against his chest and relaxed, her breathing gradually returning to normal. Daniel looked up to see Fiona watching from the far end of the room. He gave her a sharp look. You should have told me she was like this, he said, his tone accusing. Fiona stepped closer, and he could tell from the look in her eyes that she didn't want to fight this time. If I had, would it have made the subways move any faster? Or would you simply have become more reckless and possibly gotten yourself hurt in coming here? Daniel grimaced. You know me way too well. She smirked at that, but only for a moment. She would not respond to me, she said, her eyes shifting to Rebecca. I feared the possible consequences for both her and the child if I should rouse her forcefully. Rebecca groaned, flexing her hand against Daniel's. She turned her head a little to look at Fiona. Sorry, Fee, she said, sounding both exhausted and embarrassed. I thought maybe I could esp an image of Dell and Trace's murderer. I should have known better than to try to tap into something I was so angry about. She reached up and touched Daniel's cheek softly. You did the right thing, calling D. He covered her hand with his own. I'm just glad you didn't get hurt, he said. We've had too much tragedy as it is. Fiona came close enough to join hands with them, and together they entered a weak gestalt. It wasn't nearly as complete as when Sasha was there to forge the link, but after a few minutes they were able to open up to each other enough to find a little strength and solace in the shared bond. Daniel lost track of time as they commiserated about their fallen friends, and when they broke the link he felt almost encouraged. Neither Fiona nor Rebecca had come anywhere near touching on the memories of his involvement with Victor, probably because the possibility hadn't entered their minds. His own guilt aside, he was glad that he was able to do something to help them cope. Over the next hour, as they sat in the living room nursing cups of tea, Fiona explained to Daniel what had happened with their disastrous mission. It was strange to hear about the same events from the other side, 
feigning ignorance as she described the ridiculously unlucky turn of events that had led to her being trapped in one of Callie's force fields during her escape. What do the elders plan to do about it? Daniel asked. We still don't know, Rebecca said, looking worried. Right now we're just dealing with the funerals, but Brian said the elders were really serious about getting that package. They haven't said anything to us since the mission, and Sasha thinks that's a bad sign. It is about to get worse, Fiona said. Dell left active participation in the collective to marry Josephine, so they did not have fully guaranteed life and health coverage. Her eyes narrowed to green slits. I found out today that their life insurance company is refusing to honor Dell's policy. What? Why? Fiona raised a hand, palm upward, as if offering a piece of evidence for consideration. Dell's body was identified at the scene, and several witnesses reported that he had died in the commission of a felony. That was enough to void the policy. She dropped her hand back into her lap and averted her eyes. Josephine is in trouble. Her religion insists on burial rather than cremation, so the funeral costs are considerable, to say nothing of the costs of daycare for an infant if she should return to work. Isn't the hive going to do something to help her? Huh. Rebecca let out a harsh laugh. Daniel winced to hear such a bitter, ugly sound coming from her throat. Oh, sure. They'll help her, as long as she comes back to the collective and joins a breeding cell. Daniel stared. They must know she can't do that. She'd have to leave the Ecclesia, and that would kill her. Yeah, I know, Rebecca said. She looked as angry as Daniel had ever seen her. Joe and I never agreed on very much, but she's got to be free to do what she thinks is right. They're trying to use money to make her do something she doesn't want to do, and that's just wrong. I'll say it is, Daniel growled, feeling the same anger rising up inside of himself. How the hell could they decide on something like this without us? The whole point of the hive is that it's supposed to include all of us. The elders, in their infinite wisdom, decided to exclude us from the deliberations, Fiona said, her voice dripping sarcasm. Both as a punishment for our failure, and because they believed we could not be impartial enough to be suitably pragmatic. Daniel scoffed at that. He remembered Nathan's words from a few weeks ago. The collective was no more impartial than the emotionally turbulent members it was made of. He knew the hive could be manipulative, but this was a new low. And what about me? he asked. I wasn't involved in your mission. Why didn't they ask me for my input? Or Nate? Or Kevin? Rebecca looked away, fidgeting in her seat. Fiona just raised an eyebrow. Do you really need us to answer that question for you? The mildness of her words took him off guard. He lowered his eyes and felt his cheeks begin to burn. No, he really didn't need to hear the answer. It wasn't anything he didn't already know. You know, Rebecca said into the silence, I do love the collective. I really do. I even believe that it can make the world a better place. But at times like this, when this is how we treat people... She looked up at them and her eyes were dark and sad. It's sort of hard to remember why. May 30th, 1995. Christos Reckoning, Westfall Academy. Miriam Bakhtivar entered the girls' dorm room with her senses on full alert. She sized up the situation in an instant. She saw the bare spots on the walls around Abby Preston's bed, where she had once kept pictures of herself and her friends. She saw the empty bookshelf where Abby had kept her small collection of adventure novels, and the bedside table where she had kept her journal. 
She could still smell the girl, but her scent had faded slightly in comparison to that of the other three girls who shared her room. Only one of them was here now, Lysa, one of Abby's few close companions. The others, she knew, were at their combat arts class, where Lysa and Abby should have been. Mistress Miriam? Lysa said, her voice timid. The teenager's heart rate was elevated, and the chemicals she was giving off in her sweat spoke of restless anxiety. Miriam smiled at her kindly. She was here in her role as deputy headmistress, not as an elder, so she didn't hide her identity and emotions from the girl. Peace, Lysa, she said, sending her a wave of encouragement. Tell me what happened. Lysa sat down on the edge of the dresser, wrapping her arms around herself. Abby didn't come down for breakfast this morning. I thought that was kind of weird, especially for her, but hey, maybe she snuck out last night or something, right? She froze, then looked up at Miriam out of the corner of her eye. Not like we've ever done anything like that, she added quickly. Miriam smiled wryly. Of course not, she agreed. And after breakfast? She didn't show up at her first class, either. But it was just elven literature, which is boring anyway. So I thought maybe she skipped it. But then she didn't show at combat arts, either, and I knew something was wrong. Abby practically lives in the Somnok. Miriam frowned. She knew Abby's record, and Lysa was not exaggerating by much. Go on. I thought maybe she was sick, so I came back to the dorm to check on her. That's when I found these. She pulled two stationary envelopes out of her back pocket and handed them to Miriam. One of them bore Lysa's name and was opened. The other was still sealed and addressed to Miriam herself. Lysa's letter was written with purple ink in a loopy, feminine script. The letter had been written with obvious care, neatly staying within the guide rules of the stationery, but the frequent use of underlines and capital letters betrayed the author's excitement. Dear Lysa, I'm writing this letter to say goodbye, at least for now. I really wish I could have told you sooner, but Victor said that they would try to stop me from going, so he had to keep it a secret. Everything I've always wished for is coming true, Lysa. It's just like the old stories. Victor is my brave knight, coming to take me away to a new life. They wouldn't let him marry me here in the hive. They're jealous of him, and some of the older women have spread horrible stories about him to try to keep him from ever being happy. But I know my knight, and he would never hurt me. They're all wrong about him, and we're going to prove it. It hurts so bad to know that I'm not going to see you again for a long time. You're my best friend in the whole world, and I will never, ever forget you. I promise I'll come find you again when I can, but Victor says it might be a couple years. We need to have a few kids first, and once they see how strong and beautiful they are, they'll have to welcome us back. Don't try to come looking for me, because we're probably going to have to hide for a while. Stay and finish school, and when I see you again, we'll link up, and you can show me all the stuff I've missed. Try not to sleep through Elvin Lit. Okay, I have to go now. Keep it on the bright side till I see you again. Love you forever. Abs. A lipstick kiss had been pressed into the paper next to the girl's closing words. Miriam raised her eyebrows and handed it back to Lysa without comment. Lysa folded it and put it back in her pocket, blushing. Miriam opened the second envelope and unfolded the letter. Both it and the name on the envelope had been written in black, using a strong, heavy hand that was very different from Abby's. 
The penmanship was clean but sharp and angular, and the backside of the letter was covered with embossed lines where the pen's nib had bit hard into the surface. Elder Bakhtavar, Abby is safe with me. I trust that you will not make this a point of contention between us. She came to me of her own free will, and as you said, participation in the collective is voluntary. All of Abby's debts to the collective have been paid. She is a free woman. I promise you I will keep her safe as long as she stays with me, which I trust will be a good many years. Good luck to all of you in your future battles. For us, the fight is over, and I go to enjoy the fruits of victory. V. Mistress Miriam? The voice came from beside her. She turned to see that Lysa had been reading over her shoulder. If possible, she looked even more worried now than she had before, and Miriam's nose told her that the teenager had broken out in a cold sweat. What's going on here? Teachers aren't supposed to marry their students, are they? That's not... normal. Miriam's grip tightened around the letter. No, Lysa, it isn't normal. I should have seen this coming, she thought. I should have anticipated it. Abby was always too close to Victor. Great maker, how could I not have heard this in his mind? Lysa put a hand on her arm. What are you going to do? Miriam looked down at the letter again. I will keep her safe as long as she stays with me, which I trust will be a good many years. Hells, Victor, you always have a way with words. For now, nothing, she said heavily. But Connell Victor... Connell Victor is right in one sense, Miriam said firmly. We cannot hunt Abby down and hold her against her will. Young and naive as she may be, she is a free woman, and we are not her parents. She took Lysa's hand in hers. Abby knows where to find us. We will watch for her, and when she is ready, we will bring her home. Lysa nodded, and Miriam turned to leave. And I will pray she thought, that I am not making another grave mistake. We'll be back with more of the Metamore City podcast right after these messages. Hey everybody, J.C. Hutchins here. You probably know me from the award-winning Seventh Son podcast novel trilogy or my Ultra Creatives interview series. And you probably know that I'm a shameless, if tactful, self-promoter. Ah, but here's the plot twist. I'm here to promote someone other than me. Now give me a minute to talk to you about SobCon 2008. Now, SobCon is a conference created by Liz Strauss. If you don't know the name, you oughta. She's a professional blogger and career advisor. She's very influential in the online space. And she created SobCon as a way for folks like me and you, so-called average people, embrace their creative passions and start online businesses. This is SobCon's second year. Last year, the conference was covered by the Chicago Sun-Times and Business Week. It's a mashup event that's part seminar, part conference, part deep networking event. Attendees spend quality time face-to-face with some of the most highly networked business bloggers online. You'll get to cut to the core of what online business you'd like to start, consult with experts there in the room, and build a soup-to-nuts real business plan that you can put into action immediately. This is biz school for bloggers, folks, and it's good to know the business of running a great blog, whether you blog for money or entertainment. The event takes place from May 2nd to the 4th, and you can find out more information at sobevent.com. That's S-O-B 
event.com. In the world of podcasting, danger lurks around every corner. Tech nerds hand out obscure expertise. Pseudo-psychiatrists give out free advice worth every penny. Sci-fi geeks stalk the unwary, unloading useless trivia. Podcast novelists plot to take over the world and threaten to swallow your soul. It all sounds like an adventure. And if adventure has a podcast, it must be Indiana Jim. Join me, Indiana Jim, your intrepid arch-geekologist, as I navigate the potosphere. We'll talk to authors and podcasters on the front lines of traditional publishing and the new media. Uncover creative audio treasures, find inspiration from the annals of history, and battle the enemies of truth, justice, and the sci-fi geek way. Go to podcast.indianagym.net today and join the adventure. Hello, everyone. This is Michael Spence from issue number one of Sci-Fi, PHI, the Journal of Science Fiction and Philosophy. Make sure your amulet is fully charged. You're listening to the Metamore City Podcast. Thanks, Michael. We've got a somewhat shorter chapter this week, folks, but that's actually a good thing because it gives me some time here at the end to deal with some stuff. First off, a huge thank you to Bill Bowman, the voice of Victor, for his assistance in editing this episode. Bill took care of all the routine business of inserting guest voices and cleaning up the audio, which gave me time to record more narration and work on the novel. As a result, Making the Cut is now about 7,000 words closer to being finished than it otherwise would have been. I'm immensely grateful for the help. Second item on the agenda, Chasing the Bard. If you were paying attention a couple of episodes ago, you know that this is a podcast novel written by my friend Pip Ballantyne, who is also the host of Whispers at the Edge. You might also have heard that I'm one of the stars of that podcast novel. Yes, your own Chris Lester is going to be playing Mordant, the villainous she-lord who is trying to plunge the world into darkness and chaos. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? Episode 1 of Chasing the Bard debuted on March 31st, so head on over to ChasingTheBard.com and subscribe to the feed if you haven't already. It's going to be a wild ride. Thirdly, I need to mention an important event that one of my listeners brought to my attention. I'm going to fade out the music here so I can get serious for a minute. Nick Robinson emailed me last month, and he asked me to let you all know about a fundraiser that he's doing for the Alzheimer's Society of the UK. Nick and his friend Dave are going to ride their bikes from the northeastern tip of Scotland down to the southwestern tip of England, 1,400 kilometers in seven days without any external support. They're looking for people to sponsor them for the ride. They need to raise a 1,000 pounds, and right now they're just about a third of the way there. I'm going to put a link in the show notes. The money is being collected by JustGiving.com, and they will take credit cards from other countries. You can also donate via PayPal if you're more comfortable doing it that way. Go check out their blog, and if you can spare a few quid to help the fight against Alzheimer's, I know that Nick and Dave would appreciate it. Alright, now that that's settled, let's get to some voicemail. Hello, Chris. This is Amy Bowen. I wanted to say two things to you. One, 
First of all, I want you to know that I really enjoyed Troubled Mind, and I genuinely cried at the end of it. Harder than I did at the end of Moravia. Harder than I did at any point during the Seventh Son trilogy. It was just that good and that powerful. The second thing I want to say to you on a lighter note is I just listened to Chapter 4 of Making the Cut, and <laughs> I caught that they were going to day 94. <laughs> Yay, Star Wars nerds. Woohoo, I love getting inside jokes. All right, that's it. Bye-bye. Thanks, Amy. Troubled Minds was a very emotional story for me, and in truth, I was crying as I wrote that last scene. You're not the only person who's told me that it affected them strongly, and I'm glad that I was able to bring out the things that I was feeling as I wrote it. As for the other matter, yes, it's true, we are nerds, and when I had my characters going to a docking bay, I knew that it had to be number 94. Stick around long enough, and I'm sure you'll hear the numbers 42 and 23 work their way in somewhere, too. Hey, this is Ben Clifford of the Multidimensional Ninja Network podcast. Um, And I just like to say that I think Metamorph City, the short stories and uh, Making the Cut, are excellent. Um, I haven't found anything like it. It's kind of like... It's kind of like... the science fiction, the uh, the vampires and the, the psionics and, and like the succubi, and you've got the uh, the hard, and you've got like kind of the, the science fiction, uh, the other science fiction element where you've got the uh, you know super techno- uh, super technology, like uh, air air, um, you got the uh, the airships, uh, all this crazy uh, electronics and. Um, I'd just like to say that I think you're doing a great job. Bye. Well, thanks, Ben. I'm glad you're enjoying it. It's true, Metamore City does play with a lot of different genres, and I'm glad it's working for people. Let me tell you, though, when it comes to throwing together cool stuff in one story and making it all work, I can't hold a candle to Merle Lafferty. I just finished listening to Wasteland this week, and oh my gosh, you guys have got to listen to this. Get a load of this. In one story, we have... Domesticated dinosaurs, airships, giant flying whales, mad inventors, sky pirates, and people who have been turned into gods and are now trying to save the universe. I'm seriously amazed that Murr's head did not explode from the sheer amount of awesome that she had packed into this story. If you haven't listened to Wasteland and the other novellas in Murr's Heaven series, go over to patiobooks.com and subscribe right away. You won't regret it. Hey Chris, this is Jesse from Colorado. I just finished listening to Chapter 6 of Making the Cut and just want to say you're still doing an amazing job. All the different voice actors you have are just, it makes it incredible. The scene with Christiana Alice when she was in that sphere thing and she started punching through it and screaming, that it literally sent chills down my spine. I'm getting chills just thinking about it now. So amazing job guys, everybody is doing fantastic. So just keep up the good work. Thanks. Hey, Chris. This is Nobilis. This episode has to be one of the most moving so far, and they are all quite moving. In particular, I want to give kudos to Christiana Ellis' portrayal. 
the uh, I, I, just even 24 hours later, it, it makes me choke up a little bit. Wonderful job. Bye. Thanks, you guys. I couldn't agree more about Christiana. I told her what I needed for this episode, and holy cow, did she deliver. Huge thanks to you, Christiana, for screaming yourself hoarse for me. I'll be sure to buy you a drink at Balticon to say thanks. Okay, folks, there's just one more issue that we need to deal with. Metamore City t-shirts. I put out the call to you, asking people to let me know if they were interested in getting one, and I said that I'd open up pre-orders if I got 30 people saying that they were willing to order them. I got enough response from people to move forward, so I am now taking pre-orders for the shirts through PayPal. If you don't use PayPal, I can also take checks. Just email me at feedback at metamorecity.com and I'll send you my mailing address. I'll be taking pre-orders now through May 3rd. After that, I'll order the shirts, and we should get them in time for me to distribute them in the week and a half before Balticon. I'm selling the shirts for just 12 US dollars plus shipping and handling, which is $3 in North America and $9 everywhere else. This is your only opportunity to get these shirts for such a low price. If you want one, go to the website and place an order now. The link will be in the show notes. If you'd like to leave feedback about this show, you can call the voicemail line at 206-350-7333. You can also email comments in text or an audio file, which I love, to feedback at metamorcity.com. We have forums at the Metamore City fan site, which is at thecursed.org. We've also just added a fan art section over there, so if you have fan art of Metamore City that you'd like to share with us, you can send it to me and we'll put it up there for people to see it. That's all for now. I'll see you in two weeks. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. Some of the music on this podcast was provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Some sound effects were provided by SoundSnap at soundsnap.com, while others were provided by the Freesound Project, located at freesound.iua.upf.edu. Metamore City is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Find out more at creativecommons.org. <laughs>